Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, matters of life and death. Returning to the earth. And finishing strong. This is Optical Course. Let's go. John, we are here today. We're back on the road. Yeah, baby. We are at Deathly Matters, a the first annual conference. What was the conference about, John? Death. Yep. And life. Yep. And everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty well sums it up. Yeah, it was... Yeah. I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest, from the speakers, no. yeah. uh, from the like tone. Is it going to be depressing? Is it going to be uplifting? Is it going to be really like practical advice? What I was really taken aback by was the values of the people in the room and yeah. the energy and community that was created. The, the people we had on today, we just interviewed for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, the final one went a little longer than that. We're going to have to cut it down. <laughs> like 40. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea was to have 10, 15 minute interviews and just get a sense of the kind of work they do. And, and the people that we talked to today are in the field surrounding death. Yeah. What do you like to call it? The death field? The death industry. Oh, the death industry. Right. I didn't think I was allowed to say that because you said it was morbid and mean. I thought it was kind of dark. Okay, Just, dark. Yeah. But, you know, speaking of dark, you think if you're going to go to a death conference on a Saturday when it's gray and rainy, that it's going to be the most depressing day of your life. And I'm like, I'm, there's a buzz and there's a buzz of energy in the air all day. People are smiling and laughing. And, and I think it's just because it's a relief to talk about this you know, existential dread that we always have. This uh, thing operating in the background, we all know we're going to die at some point, all our loved ones are going to die and that can be depressing and so we don't talk about it. But when we do talk about it, we find we find relief, um, peace, and there's even an odd amount of joy that can come out. Yeah, I like the idea of relief. Uh, when we hide things away and, and don't talk about them, it just creates that stress. You know it's still there even if you're not making yourself aware of it or bringing it into the open speaking about it openly but that makes it worse we had an excellent conversation with one of our guests about protectionism of children around hard topics like death and how damaging it can be we learned a term today called lawnmower parenting right yeah that was something totally different than i thought it was going to be yeah (laughs) basically (laughs) the idea is that as a parent you mow down any potential <laughs> obstacle or challenge or something that may might, might make a child difficult uh something that might <laughs> make a child upset or yeah. might make them it's a complicated thing to explain it turns <laughs> out <laughs> it is <laughs> no, unlike helicopter parenting which we're all familiar with this is even closer this is where we don't want our kids to experience any struggles or pain or challenge. And so we go ahead of them and eliminate all the potential things. And well put. You know, and unfortunately what ends up happening is the kid grows up, you know, without the confidence um, of a well-adjusted adult that yeah. he can handle the normal life challenges that come, Re- come his way. Removes yeah. any problem-solving skills. And so then when that adversity ultimately hits, which it is guaranteed to, yeah, it's coming. you don't have the tools. And right. that's, that's damaging. And it, it's... It comes out of love and compassion and wanting to take care of your children, but there's a, a point where you're no longer helping. You're actually uh, putting them in harm. No, the kids need to mow their own damn lawn. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's the a bottom line. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you, Andrew. Yeah. So when was the first time you experienced death in your life in terms of, could it could be a pet, 
it, uh, when's the first memory you have of something that died? Yeah. So actually, my youth was pretty colored by death, in mm-hmm. like by close family members. Um, when I was, I think four, my grandpa died of cancer, and then right within months of that, my aunt, who was in her thirties, died tragically. Uh, and in the years, a few years before I was born, in the same kind of time, my uncle died, and uh, along with his uh, very young son, it, they drowned, which was unimaginably, hor- mm. unimaginably horrible. Yeah, and then my grandmother died when I was seven, not long after. Uh, but yeah, there was a series of, of family deaths when I was in my youth, and it was... it. Looking back now, I mean, when you're a child, that's all you know. Right. But looking back now, it was a period of fairly significant and intense grief, uh, especially on my mom's side of the family, which is, that was the, the grandmother who died when I was seven in a car accident. Um, really terrible. That left an imprint for sure. Wow. So... Yeah, it was. It's an interesting question because it's something we haven't really talked about. No, in in fact, I, I was kind of expecting the the opposite. <laughs> I was gonna. I had set up this charming story of, of killing a bird when I was younger and how guilty I felt, and I was gonna make a big joke about it. Um, but you just went to the deep end, and um, yeah, wow, I didn't even realize that. So that I'm sure that was very formative for you then, growing up. It um, was, and it, I don't think it was something that was really spoken about to the point where we were comfortable with it. I think it was, it may never have gotten past the point of, and this is only my own perspective and I'm not speaking for anyone else in my family in case they do listen to this, but for me, it was nothing beyond the sadness. Mm -hmm. It was terrible grief and hardship and, um, and it still marks the family. I know you, you've spoken before in, or you've alluded before in the podcast about your dad passing a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Did, did you lean on anything you had learned from the grief of, your, of, of those deaths that came before? Or was this the whole new, new thing to learn? Or had, was, think, it, was think, it made a bit easier? I don't think so, to be honest. <laughs> no. Because the, those deaths were when I was quite young. Right. Um, five, four, five, seven kind of thing. And... You know, when my dad passed away, I was in my... I, I had just turned 30. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't... I was poor, poorly equipped to handle that, mm-hmm. I would say. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I had... I, I would never say I didn't have support because I had the support of, of friends and family members and um, Sarah. But... I don't think I was in a great place emotionally to go into it um, in, in, in terms of stress levels and just where I was at. Um, so it, I had a hard time handling it and I felt like I was trying to fix it or, um, or somehow make a positive impact in it and, and failed to. Well, I wouldn't say fail to. Um, it wasn't enough to yeah. overcome the the sadness and the tragedy. Mm, yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. 
Yeah, and so it, it turns out it's it's actually great to talk about these kind of things. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a really great day. <laughs> it, it, it is difficult to talk about. It is, that, but it's the bottom line, and it's easy to avoid these topics, you know. And and you you can even just tell there. I mean, even in Andrew and I just sharing a little bit, it's it's difficult to talk about. It, it is it's a deep well of sadness, and and you don't just casually talk about it. But it, it turns out. It, you can experience healing through talking about it. Yeah. It's a relief that can come. And the stuff that we learned about today, fascinating stuff from uh, green burials and cremation to resources that people have, uh, companies that people are starting to give support to those dying, um, those around them, the kind of stuff that I would have loved or could have benefited from in my own process. And now that I have that awareness that this is out there, that, that's something that I will lean on um, from Buddhist and First Nations perspectives. Really eye-opening and, and wide-ranging topics today. And this is a really cool episode because it gives us the opportunity to share so many different perspectives and a lot of wisdom condensed down into a, a short interview. Yeah, and I feel like we kind of began the conversation with Heather's episode. You know, and hearing a first-hand account of what it's like to lose your best friend and your husband, you know, at 38 years old. And so it kind of almost primed the conversation for what, what came today. And I feel like this was just an extension of that. And, and we hope we can continue to, to take on topics that perhaps um, we don't like to talk about. And, and for, for those of you listening, we encourage you to have those crucial conversations because no one's getting out of here alive, as they say. We're all going to be affected by death if we haven't been already. And it's not something that you need to be depressed about or, or have this existential fear about that, that paralyzes you. It's just something that you can, once you talk about, you find relief. Um, you find a camaraderie because everybody around you, you haven't locked eyes with anyone who isn't going to experience this. Mm -hmm. And, and it, there's an odd piece that comes from that. It, it doesn't mean we're, you know, you're going to get to a place where you're just, bring it on, death. You know, we still have ego and our own personalities and, and, and we want to live as long as we can and that's normal. And we're going to experience emotions alongside of it. It's, of it's not about eliminating sadness. No, no. But it's doing death better. Yes. It's one of the, yeah. one of the, logo, one of the slogans of this conference. Doing death better. There's resources out there. If you use the resources, it can make a less negative impact right. on your life. And I and there's amazing people in our community and people that are helping those on the margins, the homeless people who are in palliative care, uh, amazing work that people are doing. And we had an opportunity to learn about it today and, and share it with you. I'm, I'm super excited to release this episode. Yeah. And there's so many good people we talked to. There's six people we talked to, and then there's probably three or four other people that we want to acknowledge. We're going to put all that in the show notes. Once again, another shout out to the show notes, just click on website on iTunes, or you can just go directly to our website, which is obstaclecoursepodcast.com. Click on the show notes and we'll have a link for every person here. And the reason why that's important is because these are well-seasoned guides that could e you could even reach out to perhaps in the future and they could make this this turbulent, somewhat frightening um, journey more peaceful. This was a great day. Absolutely. You know, and and big shout out to Linda and Shauna, oh, who man. are the two organizers. Amazing. Amazing. They did a very good job. Yeah. And we're going to have them on in a yeah, few episodes. Yeah, they're coming on. Yeah, and thanks for listening, as always, folks.
So Ashley Mollison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the important work that you do? Sure. <laughs> um, so um, I'm the project coordinator for a study out of the University of Victoria. Um, it's uh, a kind of multiple studies under the umbrella of equity and palliative care. The lead on it is Dr. Kelly Stajahar, who's a palliative care uh, nurse and researcher professor up at UVic. And um, yeah, so we, um, it kind of started with a three-year ethnographic study that looked at the experiences of people who are marginalized in whatever way that looks. So people that are homeless, uh, vulnerably housed, people living in poverty, addictions, mental health issues, that kind of thing. Um, really wanting to look at what their experiences were at end of life. Um, so we followed 25 people that fit that criteria. And um, we followed them to doctor's appointments and followed them in the food in food lineups and the shelters. And as they accessed um, their health and social needs, um, and we saw what barriers people came up against and um, what helped. So we put out a report. And then we've mm. kind of been doing lots of community development since then around building like palliative approaches to care in inner city um, inner city locations. So places like shelters and, and harm reduction sites and, um, and housing and health services are really trying to work with inner city workers and that are, and really trying to look at, you know, how do we identify people that could benefit from palliative care? Um, what kind of services are available? Um, and then how to get people hooked up with those kinds mm. of services. Wow. It's incredible work. What did you learn maybe that didn't go into the study specifically, but what mm -hmm. did you learn about humanity or, or people in a vulnerable position like that while doing that study? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to separate what I learned from the study from what I've learned in my life about people that are in um, those kinds of um, So don't situations. separate it, just tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so before I um, was part of this um, work up at UVic, I was a frontline worker myself downtown, mm. um, worked in as uh, with SOLID, which is the uh, SOLID Outreach Society, which is a peer-run organization providing harm reduction services in the inner city. Um, I worked with AIDS Vancouver Island as a harm reduction worker, and then I did a lot of advocacy, um, activism, community organizing uh, with the tent cities that um, were in Victoria. So I think that, like, by and large, um, the thing that... I've learned working in this community is that people are amazing <laughs> and um, so I hate using the word resilient because um, it's really overused but I will use the word resilient. Um, I find that people are so um, generous and the system that people work within is mutually beneficial like just really looking after their neighbors, um, people looking after each other. Uh, honesty it's kind of the most honest um, population you're going to ever work with they're always going to tell you what's up um, if you piss them off they will tell you <laughs> and um, the solutions to things like homelessness and poverty um, things like what we need in terms of health services are in the population of people that live mm -hmm. and work downtown um, and of course they get really ignored in decision making yeah. Um, but yeah I guess that I've just when people get the opportunity to be part of the solution people step up and 
have that ability. So you mentioned you followed 25 people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to assume that those people were different ages, different mm-hmm. t- different types of people, all a mixture of people. Mm-hmm. Was, was there one of those people that stood out to you, perhaps their story mm-hmm. or something that you learned or that maybe surprised you a little bit mm-hmm. or that you want to share? Yeah, for sure. I can um, speak about experience of a fellow that I followed who um, was really... Um, somebody that was really socially and geographically isolated. He was uh, 79 years old. Um, he lived on a, um, a fishing boat. And he's somebody that was completely, um, yeah, he was living with end-stage cancer, multiple cancers. Um, he had um, no sort of um, biological family in his life. But he was uh, kind of connected into like a boating community that kind of kept an eye on him. But his biggest barriers were around just um, transportation to getting to appointments, um, even knowing about the palliative care system and what was available. He, um, his boat sank and he wound up in hospital. That's where he kind of found out that he was living with all those cancers. And, mm. um, and so I followed him. Um, and the reason that he got referred to our study was because he, uh, was at, he wouldn't... Um, allow home care to access um, mm. him. So basically he kind of refused all care. And so I showed up to um, ask him if he'd like to be part of our study. And I knocked on his um, motel room, which was where he was housed after his boat sank. I just knocked on the door and I said, you know, my name's Ashley and I want to learn about your life. And so he opened the door and invited me in and we developed a really like close relationship for six months before he died. And I was actually there with him when he died. Mm. Um, I was listed as his next of kin when he went to hospital. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it was really impactful for me because um, just like how tight you can um, become with people at times in their lives where they're feeling very vulnerable, but also reflective um, and what it like really reflective on the meaning of life and what's most important to people. Um, often those things come at end of life. Um, so yeah, I guess like he was definitely like the person that was the most impactful. Just looking at kind of all the barriers that he experienced as somebody that had a really hard upbringing and um, had experiences of violence, also as like a um, a victim of violence or a survivor of violence, but also a perpetrator of violence and for him um, how he kind of made that choice to isolate himself and then how does health services navigate that right so how the importance of trust and the importance of building relationship with people we just don't have that in our healthcare system and oftentimes when folks show up to provide care it's um, a certain way of going about it like we want to see changes he felt a lot of judgments by the healthcare system because he felt that his um, you know, they'd make comments about how dirty his room was or that he wasn't eating properly while he was living in poverty and he didn't have money to eat. And he was like spending a lot of money on the, the, um, the motel room. Um, you know, so it's really like, um, just a testament, I think, to entering in a person's life and saying, you know, I want to learn about you and I want to learn about what's most important to you and not, I want to see your care happen this certain way. What was his name? Oh, his name was um, Old George. Wow. Yeah. Great. That's yeah. awesome. What, what do you think was one gift that George gave to you and uh, a gift that you gave to George? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, 
So I think that um, George, for me, like affirmed beliefs that I have around um, meeting people where they're at and entering in with like non-judgment. And I've seen that like so many times in my life where we have um, such a better, you have such a better um, like trajectory with someone for lack of a better term when you start a relationship off in just a chill, non-judgmental way. Um, so he like affirmed that for me. He also like gave me the privilege of being with him at end of life um, and calling me to be the person that was with him at end of life. Um, that was really impactful for me. And because um, it wasn't something I had done with anyone before, even in my family, I'd never been with someone when they actually died. And yeah. um, when he was in hospice, he, um, he, I was with him all day and then I got really, really ill and I was away like throwing up for about 24 hours. And um, so I was like, I can't go to hospice. And then I came back and then he died within a half an hour mm. of me holding my hand. Mm. Right. So it was like, he waited for me to come oh, back yeah. and, oh. and then to do it right and do that death part. Right. Um, so I, yeah, that was just really awesome. And then the gift that I think I gave him was, um, non-judgment. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. that was the gift that I gave him, which that he had someone who um, was keeping an eye out for him at end of life, who didn't have an agenda. Um, and I <laughs> drove him to go buy a gun at um, at uh, Canadian Tire because there was a raccoon that was um, like a BB gun. Because there was a raccoon that was swimming from the shore and eating his food. Oh, no. So, oh. like, it was just hilarious moments like that we had together where yeah. he was just, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher and, yeah, you know, that's, going that's and having, awesome. like, you know, does this gun look okay? And I was like, well, don't tell ethics that I'm in here with a... Awesome. <laughs> no, they're cool with it, but it wasn't, our, it wasn't research money. I was going to say, <laughs> do you want us to edit that out? <laughs> so speaking of gifts, mm -hmm. uh, the question I had is what you have is a gift mm. to, to love people on the fringes, the marginalized, the, the, the kind of people that a lot of people just, you know, either avoid or put their hand up and look the other way. Where do you think this gift came from? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, so as a, you know, as a young person, my mom worked um, as a community health nurse um, with couch and people. She was um, there for about like 20 years. So I think really early age, um, we were always incorporated into kind of indigenous events. And I'm not myself indigenous, um, but just like being part of the potlucks and you know being part of the big house ceremonies that not a lot of white people got <laughs> invited into and uh, always serving elders and it was just always really instilled in us at a very young age that life isn't good for everybody mm -hmm. and um what there was like suicides on reserve and i remember my mom she was like she really like had a feeling and like intuition around death and um and when it was happening. So she'd be like, okay, there's been a death. And then she'd go to work the next day and there's a suicide. And um, we also had people that we really looked up to and elders um, on in that community that were like our teachers. Mm. And so I think that for me, like a lot of where I come from um, was embedded in 
yeah. in that upbringing and then and then just like work experience life experience family experience of of um mental health and addictions just seeing how much support um makes such a difference for people yeah. right and just that Absolutely. kind of like it just makes the difference between being in a ditch in <laughs> on the road right well one of our previous episodes we had a guy who works with the homeless in regina mm-hmm. and he said that you know trauma is the is the link with with most people on the streets but um, trauma without support yeah. is the problem mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. is we all have trauma in our life in our own way yes but but the people who don't have support are the ones that are struggling the most sure. and For so sure. the support is is life-saving right mm-hmm. yeah and so i completely agree with that and i think support has to look like what the person articulates as right. the support they need right because right. i think that's so looks different yeah. it looks different and it's yeah. and it can look like community care or it could look like one-on-one counseling or it could look like you know like um social determinants of health that can look like housing and yeah. <laughs> income and all these things right yeah. so um yeah it's just um it's really like looking at the person in front of you and trying to build a relationship and figure out okay what is it yeah. that a person needs Absolutely. and I need those things too yeah, right yeah, and I don't see sure. myself as a I think that's the other thing is that I'm not going into community like I'm different from people that are walking through walking homeless on the street like mm. I come from a working class family we have lots of trauma in our family like historical mm. trauma again I've been very benefit like it's been a privilege for me to have support in my life mm. and um, but just always recognizing that you're you could be one paycheck away from that situation as well right it's not it's people that are on the street and living in poverty aren't a different species no (laughs) they are continue it's a continuum right yeah absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. so in terms of that situation and you mentioned earlier that those people are probably the one with this the ones with the solutions Mm -hmm. to the great challenge that we see of of homelessness and Mm -hmm. and poverty and and misfortune Mm -hmm. in our communities Mm -hmm. And it affects everyone in the community, whether you um, allow yourself to be aware of that or not. It, mm-hmm. it affects us all. I'm. This could be a, a very long conversation, uh, but I'm. I'm wondering what, in terms of finding those solutions, or at mm-hmm. least getting closer to those solutions. Mm-hmm. What do you think might be some of the ways to go in that direction? Yeah. So. One really exciting thing about working on this palliative care project is that palliative care has brought so much hope and um, excitement to my life. And this is kind of maybe counterintuitive, (laughs) but what I've seen, the difference from working in community where you're working around death and dying all the time and not a lot of support and um, being undervalued in the health and social care system. what I've found in palliative care is that it is such a loving community that really meets people where they're at, really looks at um, people's pain as their pain and not their addiction, right? It mm-hmm. looks at their symptoms, it looks at their quality of life, right? Mm-hmm. And all these principles are so, um, they fit so well for me and my philosophy of life. And I see, and in our study, one of the things that we saw was that people who um, get access to palliative care and a palliative approach to care, they actually have the best care that they've ever had in their life. So we had this fellow in our study who, um, you know, was really trying to convince 
somebody to listen to him and he was assumed to be drug seeking because he had a history of um, addictions and homelessness and then he finally got um, got an MRI and it was found that he had advanced um, like spinal cancer like stage mm-hmm. four so he was palliative essentially mm-hmm. and he had there's this like quote that I'm gonna read in my presentation later but um, he basically says that you know since I got the cancer it's the best care I've ever had in my life it's so counterintuitive that right. talking about death and dying is um, is the most hopeful thing for people but it what we really are seeing is this um, that it, in all of this work to get people talking and writing down what they want there's an ownership and like a sense of autonomy and um, and like being part of the process and decision making that's really empowering for people well and they're embracing their full humanity that's like, exactly when, it when you can talk about death yeah and and and, and actually talk about it mm-hmm. and not avoid it or, mm-hmm. or medicate yourself to to not feel the effects um, you know you can't be fully human and so they're exp- they're they're feeling that mm-hmm. they're feeling the full expression of being human and now with a purpose attached to it as well it's Feelings, feeling really human in the context of always being dehumanized. Yeah. Right. right. And so yeah. I think that right. that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Exactly what it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm really appreciative of your time and uh, I've learned so much from this conversation and, and the work that you do and the, the motivation behind it is super powerful and inspiring. Mm. So thank you. Uh, where can people go to find out more about the work that you do and the results of the study? That's a great question. We are <laughs> right now developing a website um, that isn't uh, ready yet. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know the address for it. Um, but if you look up like www.uvic.ca slash peol, like P-E-O-L, that's palliative end of life. Um, that is the web, our website. Um, you can always email me, um, which is mollison, M-O-L-L-I-S-O-N, at uvic.ca. Awesome. Thank you so much Thanks for having so me. Thanks so much, Ashley. Okay. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Cool. So, yeah, as you're doing so far, just try to aim for the middle of the microphone in front of you. Okay. And um, you'll, other than that, just relax and, and um, this will all be over in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you make it sound so inviting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a conference about death after all. It'll all be over in a minute. <laughs> is, is this your first podcast that you've been on? Absolutely. I don't get asked this every day. So. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, you're not the first person who this is their first podcast today. Okay. So you, yeah, don't worry. You, you fit right in. Great. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and do you want to start by telling us a little bit about the work that you do? Okay, I'd say probably the main thing that I do is uh, I teach Buddhist meditation classes. And uh, so one of the things that I do is um, I, I am an uh, end-of-life doula, or I have, a, have training as a death midwife and a home funeral guide. Um, and this is work that... Uh, I think that's probably just been a part of my life for most of my life. And uh, I just do this as something to um, support family and friends and, uh, you know, participate in education processes that go with that. Um, as, a, as, a, as a Buddhist practitioner, this is, uh, this is 
you know, just an, another layer, I suppose, mm-hmm. of um, friendship, of support for people that I love. Yeah. Cool. Well, and you, you use the word end of life doula. And, and mm-hmm. we've heard the word doula a few times today. And, and, and I'm pretty sure it's Andrew and I's first time hearing this word and probably mm-hmm. our listeners as well. Can you explain maybe to listeners what a doula does and what, what that means? Yeah, I, I think I think people who do this work are trying to come up with the term that they <laughs> use right. and what they do, right. uh, and then you know try to define what what they do. Um, you know, the people who are uh, interested in this work do various uh, aspects of care at the end of life. Okay. So it, it could be, um, uh, you know, when somebody gets uh, the, the serious diagnosis, uh, providing the, the support that's needed there, or it, it can be involved with the care, uh, the physical care, emotional care for both the person that's dying and the people that are around them. Um, it can be involved with, uh, you know, ceremony and ritual Sometimes it's, you know, doing things like being power of attorney or, okay, wow. you know, all these, these things. And then, and then um, uh, what happens after the death? So it, it's, it's, it's quite multifaceted. Almost uh, like a guide for the journey. It is. It yeah. is. And it's, it's, you know, you're really being a companion. Right. You're, it's, it's, you know, a difficult thing to describe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. But one of the... the one of the descriptions uh, of a death midwife is, or you know, description of the role is uh, that you remain invisible. So we're not mm. taking over anything that somebody couldn't do themselves. Um, but you know, we may be what that person needs uh, mm. at at any given point. Yeah. How do your Buddhist teachings work well in doing that work? How do, how does that learning translate? Well, I was saying to the people in my session this morning that, uh, you know, somebody once said to me, oh, Buddhist, you're into death, aren't you? (laughs) And, uh, you know, they... That's a t-shirt right there. uh, Yeah. (laughs) What was your answer? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, so... um, So it is, you know, within Buddhist teachings, um, the teachings on death... Uh, have an impact, a, a, a very deep impression on our thinking of our uh, developing of our of our of our spiritual nature. Um, you know, we can't help but be deeply moved by it, and so you know, we meditate on death, and uh, you know, sometimes multiple times during the day, and you know, these 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 meditations. Uh, help us to gain spiritual realizations. Um, sometimes it could be pretty straightforward and, and and simple, like you know, if I don't have, I don't know when I'm going to die. It it, it might be today. You know, mm-hmm. we, we you know none of us know for sure. So if I knew it today, uh, how would I live? You know, how would I? What would I do this afternoon if uh, if this was my last day? It's a great philosophy. So are are you meditating right now? Is- uh, as we're doing this? I'd... At this moment? Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Well, I always hope that the benefits of meditation are with me all the time. <laughs> her but her there eyes are, are open, Andrew. Okay, so you can meditate with your eyes yeah, open. Yeah, that's true. I can't. I, I can't either. But we are we, we are both practicing meditators. We Wonderful. are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. What yeah. would for somebody who perhaps wants to learn more about Buddhism or and or meditation or get a, a gentle introduction to it because it's a it's a philosophy that us Western people don't have as much exposure to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's increasing for sure now, but mm-hmm. how would you say is a good way to ease in? Don't okay. start with meditating on death, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, let me tell you about that. <laughs> Might be. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, Please correct me then. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't, um, in my session this morning, I was explaining to people that I know that I look like a person who has uh, uh, been a Buddhist all my life, but I haven't. Okay. Uh, my, my, my parents uh, are second generation okay. Japanese Canadians and my grandparents came to Canada over a hundred years ago mm. and I don't know even what spiritual practice my grandparents may have but my parents were um, United Church so okay. uh, you know so I didn't um, grow up with any mm. strong uh, feelings about Buddhism um, so it was only about 11 years ago that I happened to drop into a meditation class. I didn't realize that it was even going to be uh, a Buddhist meditation class because I didn't uh, check it out before I dropped into the class. And uh, the, the tradition, um, and, and this became uh, my opening uh, that you describe here. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, I thought I was going to go and meditate for an hour and a half and I thought that would be good for me, um, but it was the teachings uh, of, of the uh, of the Buddhist teachings that were presented in a way that I found very accessible. Mm-hmm. And um, and then since that time, it's grown. So I've been teaching for about eight years now or so. And and uh, you know, with the the way that we um, you know we offer the classes, I think makes it open and possible. So I was taking a class at the Esquimalt Rec Center, and, mm. uh, and this was um, my introduction to Buddhist teachings. And I think I found because they were very clear, they were very pure, it wouldn't have mattered what the topic was. It could have even been death. <laughs> and uh, I, it would have, uh, and, and, uh, you know, it, it would have made me come back for another week. Cool. So, um, so I teach within this tradition now, and every class I teach, I never know who's going to come. So mm-hmm. some of the people have been coming to my classes from the very beginning, and some of them are coming for the first time. Cool. So, um, you know, we learn to teach to that, yeah. um, you know, that, uh, that everybody's coming in at a different place. Quick question about your experience and maybe the experience of people coming into your class now for the first time. Mm-hmm. What void do you think you were trying to fill or... or problem were you trying to solve that that brought you to buddhism in the first place and and also what for the for the people who are coming to it now that you see in your classes what space are they trying to fill Mm -hmm. through those teachings yeah um well the first class that i went to um i wasn't looking for anything i i just 
thought uh, somebody had suggested that this class was here and I didn't have a good excuse for not going, so I went. Uh, but, um, but the topic uh, that first night um, was about compassion. And, you know, I looked around this room and I thought, this is so interesting. There are a dozen people here sitting around and they're talking about how to cultivate compassion. Where else, where else am I going to find this? Mm-hmm. You know, why are these people talking about this? And um, it was just very compelling. Uh, I had to come back for, for more. And I think because all of the teachings um, are about compassion and wisdom, um, who doesn't want more of that? You know, and unless you're a fully enlightened being, you're going to be drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, that's that's what it is. And 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 I hope that I can give that to students when you know when they step in the door. So, yeah. So meditation is finally beginning to become quite popular in, mm-hmm. in, in North America. And uh, there's apps now, which, yes. which has made it very accessible. <laughs> you, apps like Headspace and Waking Up and, and a whole host of other apps. Um, how would you say that perhaps Buddhist meditation might differ from sort of more, you know, the, the meditation that perhaps a lot of the current generation is experiencing for the first time so uh, th- this tradition that uh, that I belong to is is called the Nukadampa tradition okay. um, it's practiced all over the world I can't even tell you now how many different countries uh, these you know this presentation of Buddhist teachings have, have touched and they came from uh, the teachings of um, our, our spiritual guide, who is uh, Geshe Kelsen Gyatso, and uh, he was from Tibet and had all the, the training in the Tibetan monasteries and had to leave Tibet and was in India and, and was invited by um, a group of uh, uh, people looking for a Buddhist teacher who lived in northern England, okay. and that was in the 1970s, early 1970s. And uh, he traveled there, and uh, when they connected with him, they knew that they had found their teacher. And, uh, and his uh, teachings have just grown out of that. So it's, it's the teachings, but he also set up a teaching system that made it possible for people to walk into a class the first time because they were curious and, you know, glean something from that or somebody who, you know, says that, um, uh, you know, I, I read a book on Buddhism, it really means something to me, but I don't know what to do with it after that. Do right. I just, you know, keep reading on my own or do I find a community that's that's doing the same thing? So he has uh, classes that are set up for introductory things and then study programs <clears throat> for people who want to take what they've been able to glean from the introductory classes and take it deeper and take it you know deeper with a yeah. group of people that also want to do the same thing yeah yeah i i think we could have a, a very long discussion about <laughs> buddhism and learn so much yeah. um but i want to be conscious of your time um but one final question. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the most interesting place that Buddhism has taken you? Ooh. That's a 
hard one because <laughs> it's it's all so interesting. And every time you think that you found the more most interesting place, uh, there's always more to that because I haven't understood uh, even the most basics. So you know, I keep going back to it and going back to all the different places. Um, I would say, you know, Buddha's teachings on emptiness are incredibly profound and, uh, you know, take you to amazingly um, deeper understandings of things that you thought you understood or mm. accepted. And, uh, and, you know, for that, I'm incredibly grateful. But it's an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing process. Yeah, you, you don't arrive. It's, you continue <laughs> yeah. to learn and grow. Yeah. There's, there's so much space to grow there. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, where can people find out more about the teaching that you do and, and the work that you do? Um, if they, if they uh, go through the Bodhicitta Kadampa Buddhist Center, then they will find that information. I think if you uh, go to Meditate in Victoria, that will get you to the... <laughs> People can probably spell that better. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Meditate okay. in Victoria. Okay. Uh, then, then, uh... Perfect. then something starts with a B. Um, and we'll put links to it in our show notes for yeah. this episode, okay. for sure. I can give you a brochure, too. Amazing. Oh, nice. Maybe I'll show up one of these days. Cause yeah. We love that. I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank your you. time. Yeah. Okay, thank Thanks, you. This is great. Yeah. I think that's the whole experience of this conference is that yeah. we're all we're all strange together here. Right. <laughs> like, mm. It's just yeah. normal. Talking that's about a, this stuff is normal. A yeah. great way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So Chelsea Pedal, yes. welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Obstacle Course. Thank you. It, uh, sometimes people do pedal on obstacle courses. Oh, so that's that they do. That works. Together. Yeah. What you just did there was magnificent. <laughs> that was sharp. Yeah, I just, I just had lunch. Yeah. So, I'm on my game. <laughs> so, please tell us uh, about the work that you do. Sure. I'm a bit of a newbie. It feels strange being here as a presenter, actually, when I feel like I should just be one of the participants the whole time. Yeah. But um, I have a, a relatively new business. It's called Circle Space, Empowered End of Life Planning. And my goal is really to help people prepare for end of life so that they can live in peace right now. Hmm. Um, the work that I do is about death, but actually it's really more about living. It's yeah. more about how do you create the life that you want right now so that you don't have any regrets? How do you prepare your future self? What gifts can you give your future self by making some decisions now, putting some paperwork in place, having some meaningful conversations to make that journey a bit easier once you get there? Because we all, we all do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what work were you doing previous to this and what inspired mm -hmm. you to start that business? Oh, I was a public servant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a nice I'm term. I'm a recovering hey? public enough. servant. Yeah, I, uh, well, I mean, really, I started working in community doing youth work and social justice work and activism and youth leadership. And then I wanted a stable job. So I moved to government and did community development there and maternal health policy. 
And um, it's actually, it, you'll find if you talk to people here, there's a lot of folks that kind of started this work on the other end of the spectrum doing birth work uh, yeah. and um parenting education and things like that so hmm. um there's actually like a very natural link because it's all about transitions and right. you know assuming a new identity um and accessing healthcare and legal services and things like that so i always i feel like i was already kind of in this community but for me my, my dad died when i was 16 years old so i've always had an awareness of my mortality it's just been a part of my life i was fortunate to be raised in a family where we talked about death um it was just part of our culture and then um, i ran into a friend who was in this community and she was interested in doing this work and it was kind of like all the dots just connected i was like how everything that i've been doing up until now the policy work understanding how to navigate systems um, the education piece having meaningful conversations all of those little skill sets that were kind of seemed random before just tied together so in terms of that conversation uh, in amongst the family when Mm -hmm. you were uh, in your youth Mm -hmm. which is something that as you kind of referred to doesn't happen all the time Mm -hmm. what did those conversations sound like well for us it was kind of like sink or swim so when my dad got sick you know you've got the choice to acknowledge it or the choice to to move on so they were very candid um you know my mom would involve me in um the conversations about my dad's prognosis so when he went into hospice i understood what hospice was i understood the type of care and support that he would get there um so it was just a lot of transparency um so as a teenager mm-hmm. it wasn't like the door was shut and mm-hmm. it's like hey we're having an adult conversation now exactly right which happens a lot it I sure think. does yeah. yeah and that really is quite um damaging yes absolutely yeah because the surprise of it afterwards and because yeah, it, healing happens when you can do it in the moment, right? Absolutely. You can do it in, in process with with your loved ones. Why do we do after. that? Like, why do a lot of parents, I think, do that? Mm. Where they where they think, oh, this will damage the kids yeah. if they if they hear, you know, all the gory details or hear the reality. Yeah. Why do we think that? Because it's just, not yeah. true. I don't think, so right? afraid, and I think that we underestimate children as well. Right. And we also don't understand child development either. Right. So I have two little ones. I have an almost four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And um, I've been having the same type of thoughts like, well, how much do I share with them about uh, the fact that, that my mom is, is on her end-of-life journey? Um, what can the four-year-old handle? What can the seven-year-old handle? And, you know, really, both of them are buffered by their just childhood resilience. And they'll ask what they want to know. They're the best people to decide how much they need to know. So if you don't go offering, you know, way too much detail and information, um, you can actually have, if you let them lead the conversation, you can have really, um, you know, deep and and emotional conversations with kids at their level. The trick is just to let them guide you. Mm, And and honestly, when we think about it, it's not what we know that's super stressful. It's what we don't know. Oh, so true. Oh my gosh. My, you know, my seven-year-old, she's got a very literal mind. And so um, when we were talking about uh, my mom's cancer, because it's important to to name things, right? When we talk about our bodies and sex education, name, you know, have anatomically correct. It's the same thing when you're talking about death. So she asked me, she wanted to know what cancer was. And she said, mom, is it a a liquid, solid, or a gas? (laughs) Like, wow. that's where her brain went. She wanted to be able yeah. to picture it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what they imagine 
is often worse than what it actually yeah. is. So if you can give them the real information, you're, you're actually benefiting them. Yeah, and they're going to find out. Let's be That's honest. It. We live in the age of these magic boxes in our hands That's where it. you can find out things instantly. And they're going to find out. And better for them to find out from you mm-hmm. than perhaps a, a warped way yeah. of yeah. what something is. Absolutely. It's that whole idea of protectionism, right? And you think if you like cocoon and protect your children oh. from everything then yeah. they'll be okay it's a disaster yeah. but it's it the opposite is true no. they, you, you need to open them up to yeah. experience and reality because you're not gonna keep them in that cocoon forever no, well, doesn't mean let them watch a breaking bad although it no. is a good show <laughs> maybe not for a seven-year-old what's yeah. that lawnmower parenting right that's how we talk about parenting a lot right. of the time right now is that you mow down those obstacles in front of your kids because that's uh, what parents think they're supposed to be doing or like helicopter doing. parenting i guess yeah is so the, the helicopter is the hover and the fix oh, okay. the lawnmower is you literally like you act in your child's uh, place and you remove anything that's negative i haven't heard that one but i, I love I, that description I like that too. Yeah. yeah that happens too much and the problem is then when inevitably they come into their own challenges and also yeah. they're completely ill-prepared yeah, they're not equipped yeah yeah absolutely no that's uh that's a great way of putting it so you mentioned your mother mm-hmm. who's in who's in hospice right now and that must be you know you're at a conference talking about this very thing and, and at this time your mother's dealing with that mm-hmm. can you perhaps provide a little more detail on that how long has that been going on mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite sudden. Um, So much so that it, you know, I made the decision last night as to whether or not I was actually going to present today, Mm. because it's, you know, like I'm, I'm living it. And there's lots of people at this conference who are living it. We're we're always in it, some more so than others. But um, you know, the the decision that I had to make was: Am I actually functional? (laughs) Can I come and articulate sentences? Can I represent my business well? Can I connect with people? Um, in a way that will honor their their time and energy that they've put in to come here. The answer is a resounding yes. Oh, God, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for you, I mean, your own experience is, is as important as anything, right? Yeah. And, and your own self-care. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, has it, your experience so far, has it been useful and therapeutic for you? Mm. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I do the work that I do. I feel like, you know, as equipped as I can be to support my mom on her her journey. Um, And certainly, you know, I've had my toolkits. I've got my curriculum. It's always different when you're doing it for uh, a loved one. Um, But the good thing is, and, and this is what I love about being here today, is that, like, this is my community, too. I know where to go for help. I know where to go to get those resources. And it's all here today. There's so many people that, you know, when they're faced with a loved one's death or an illness, they're they're immobilized because they haven't done this work. They don't have the relationships. They don't know how to navigate the system. So for me, I'm just coming here actually is a little bit of my self-care because I know I can just exist in this place. And if I need to burst into tears, I can burst into tears. In my workshop that I just presented in this morning, I took probably like a good three minutes where I was like hand on heart, hand on belly, like I just need a moment and let the emotion go through. And people understand that and support it here, which is an amazing experience. What I'm curious about is is in your work, you help guide and navigate people through this time. Mm -hmm. And so you, you must have a you know, a course or, or a steps that you take them through. Mm-hmm. Now you're going through it. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is, have you noticed any gaps 
-hmm. anything where it's like, hey, you know, based on now going through it, I've learned something perhaps that I can now take back and add to my, oh yeah, and help other people. And what were some of those things you've learned? Gosh, so much. Um, I mean, my presentation today was on personal care and comfort wishes. So, you know, what are the kind of non-medical, non-clinical things that we can do to bring comfort to our bodies, our minds, our spirits? Um, and just the number of little tips and tricks that when you're actually in it, you know, so like, oh, you're in a hospital setting. That means you can't tape up pictures of your loved ones on the wall. So where do you do it? Oh, the bottom of the bed is a really great place for it. You tape it to the, the, the baseboard there. Um, or you bring in a folding piece of cardboard and you tape it up and you can put it on the side table. Like just Mm. all these little kinds of things like that. But probably the, the biggest thing that I've learned that's shifted my business is that, um, I've really focused on people who want to do this work of preparing before they're in a health crisis, but for themselves. And what I've realized now, having been in the role of family caregiver for the first time, just how much support family caregivers need. Mm -hmm. And so that for me, you know, I'm basically taking like field notes (laughs) through this entire experience with my mom, like every moment is a learning opportunity. And so now what I'm doing is just trying to integrate all of these lessons around how to help the family caregivers and their job in coordinating the massive tasks that that they're responsible for because their loved one is you know generally um, incapacitated to a certain degree or re- require that support so that's a whole other other audience mm. basically that that's opened up for me that I realize really needs support yeah, Absolutely. yeah. one of the things that um, that Linda said in her opening remarks mm-hmm. was and it was from uh, from her notes that that were from her mother right before her mother passed and it was um basically that you have to be okay with death so that the people around you can be okay yeah and it's it's absolutely true that uh, someone's death is maybe hardest for the people that are closest to them rather than even themselves Mm -hmm. Uh, it can be a very terrible and challenging thing to overcome and and get through Mm-hmm. without the proper support yeah uh, which is coming from people like you mm. which is amazing um, what what would what would you say is something that people can do you mentioned early on about giving people the tools or, or some resources that they can start planning for or using to plan uh, even before any diagnosis or, mm-hmm. or getting elderly yeah. Well, that's, that's it. That's the number one. That's mostly people that I work with are folks that are future thinking. They're, they're not in a current health crisis. And that's where I want to work with people. Um, I'm, very, um, I'm very pragmatic, um, even though I do heart-centered work. So for me, my starting point is always, you know, get your advanced care plan done. So your future self, if you're not able to make decisions for yourself, there needs to be someone else who's empowered to make those decisions for you and that understands your values, what's important to you, what you might want. And that can be quite a, a complex process. It's not just kind of filling out the paperwork. The whole point is that you have the conversations, you build the relationships, um, you learn how to express what your wishes are. So that's, that's my starting point usually. is uh, it, It's kind of an easy entryway because it's this pragmatic thing. A lot of people are more comfortable with doing like little paperwork but the the opportunity is the conversation that flows from that i'm guessing one of the biggest obstacles is just getting people to just finally accept (laughs) you are going to die yes (laughs) yeah Yeah. we're all going to die and begin to talk about it yes because you know we're taught in our culture to 
to numb everything, mm-hmm. right? You got a pain, take a pill for it. Yeah. You feel an uncomfortable feeling, you know, take a sip of this, mm-hmm. you know, and we numb it all and we repress it and, and we don't allow ourselves to feel it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, and I'm just wondering how you help people with what you do to maybe feel the reality of death, mm-hmm. not in a morbid way where there's walking around, you know, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. But just how can you help people feel it, accept it and move forward in peace? That is like the number one question. That's why I asked. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And you know, I don't have a really good answer because I've often thought, well, like, so what was the turning point for me? Like what? So yes, I was blessed to be raised in a family where, you know, death and life cycles are normalized. But like what made me want to work in this field? Because that's another kind of level, right? Yeah. Um, Andrew was probably about to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But what, you know, what is that thing that flips the switch in people's minds and hearts that makes them able to look at their own mortality and I don't know what that is yet one of the things that I think about when I was in this process because I fought it for a while like I kind of felt like it was drawing me in and I was thinking this is insane why would I want to think about this every single day yeah but I read an article that said something like it was talking about lifespan and it says you are not entitled to whatever stats can says your lifespan is like nobody is entitled to a certain length Hmm. of life and for some reason that really stuck with me this idea that like i'm not missing something that is owed to me if my death comes earlier than i thought Mm -hmm. it would or if a loved one's death comes earlier than i thought it would and that really draws it back to that whole idea is that like you got to live the life that you've got and to um to really enjoy it and to take steps so that you don't have lots of regrets when you're on your your deathbed so I think it's a series of moments that yeah. brings people to that willingness to do work with me, to do work on themselves. Um, but you can't drag anybody in no, either. No, definitely not. Yeah. Well, maybe part of it too is just learning to be okay with mystery. Totally. Right. And we oh. live in a culture where it's just a like, Google it. Yeah. There's no mystery about anything. Yeah. And if you, you know, if we can't figure it out right away, then you know we we don't want to live with that feeling. Yes. So just being okay with well, what's a, what's a greater mystery than death? Yeah. Nobody knows what happens. Yes. Right? And, and so, that's one of the things that makes me think about having yeah. conversations with kids because kids are, you know, they're, they're in a lot of cases, they're okay with ambiguity in yeah, a way that yeah. adults aren't. And so yeah. if you can engage with children on this topic True, where yeah. you're just, I often say my, my daughter will ask me a question and it's like a really great question yeah. and I don't have the answer. And I say, that's a mystery. Like, what's your, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And we just explore mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. sitting in that space actually is, is a good thing. Yeah, don't absolutely. have to have the answers. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I think that's a pretty uh, powerful place to to conclude. So I just want to really express gratitude for you having the courage to be here and to share your tools and and wisdom with the people who are attending the workshop. And and you may call yourself a newbie, but you have a lot to share. Yeah, yeah. Didn't show. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. I fooled you. (laughs) Yeah. So thanks for being here and and coming on the podcast and asking important questions. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chelsea. We're here now with Chris Benish and a lot of your background and work is, is around uh, green burials and uh, and you've been in this field for, for a number of years now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Sure. 
I started in funeral service as a funeral director and embalmer 33 years ago and my parents were funeral directors and owned their funeral company in a small town in rural Alberta. So I grew up in the uh, community where everyone knew everyone. Mm -hmm. um, predominantly everyone was doing the same thing. They were having traditional burials, traditional funeral viewings, embalming, two, three days of viewing and then followed by a church service out to the cemetery. Um, 19 years ago, I migrated over to uh, Victoria and have been there ever since, or here ever since, uh, for 19 years now. And as time went on, we started to see a transition of uh, families choosing to get back to more simple times. So green burial became something that was offered in Greater Victoria uh, within the last 10 years. And uh, so our company kind of embraced that. Uh, whole philosophy of green burial and what we're hoping in the short uh, future in the next year or two perhaps a little bit longer uh, is to have green cremation which is a, a different process than fire cremation is today so uh, yeah 33 years in the business um, I'm the second of three generations my son is also a funeral director and bomber my wife is also a funeral director my nephew is also a funeral no. director so it definitely runs in the family yeah, so that's yeah. what we're doing now can you tell us a little bit about green burial and green cremation? Uh, just give us some details and our listeners for, for those who might not be as familiar with what that really means. Sure. So when I say uh, we're going back in time a little bit, we're, we're reclaiming the, the simplicity of burial by calling it now green burial. But it's not a brand new uh, topic. It's not a brand new way of doing things. It's actually going back to the roots of how we used to do things. Um, in the last 150, 200 years in North America, the funeral industry has been a very commercialized industry. Um, and a lot of that tradition was there. The cemeteries specifically were, were designed and built to uh, have monuments and gravestones to come out and read and be part of the, um, the community. The green burial movement has, has recognized that we're wanting to see um, a forested area or a park so that the, the lands can be reused or used for other purposes at the same time as we honor our dead. And so we recognize as part of human uh, relations that it's important to have a place to go to, for ceremony and for remembrance. And we didn't want to see people get away from cemeteries completely, but it, on the other side, you didn't want this beautiful 50 acre parcel of land in the middle of the city being used for sole purpose. So the idea was um, go back to simpler times, have a burial whereby the body is placed in the ground, there's no embalming, there's no chemicals, there's no outside casket. Um, it can be just the body in the ground, no gravestone on top, replant uh, the local vegetation on top of that grave setting, and then you know mark it off perhaps with a communal stone where everyone's name is on there saying these are all the folks buried in this in this general area but return it to nature as, as quickly as possible and yet protect the sanctity of that space so it's always a protected space uh, where people can go and remember but not in the in the rows and rows of of granite stones and that sort of thing mm -hmm. I, l I love that i really love that image and, and i love that you know, 
full disclosure, I love going to graveyards. It's weird. Mm. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think, well, my kids say it's weird anyways, but, <laughs> uh, we, we, I, I love walking through them because it's such a time for me just to reflect on life. I read yeah. the stones. It's, it's yeah. like walking through history and I love history. It is. Yeah. And, um, but I agree that, the that often I think, boy, there's, you know, there's, there's this huge space with, you know, big stones and then big, mm-hmm. big boxes underneath. And it just doesn't mm-hmm. seem um, sustainable, sustainable. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So this is a sustainable thing, but I also must imagine it must be more, it would it be more cost effective as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's a far cry less uh, expensive for the, uh, the family who's purchasing plot space, you know, for the burial itself. Um, so you can imagine that there was a bit of resistance from the funeral industry. Yeah. The funeral industry is a multi-billion dollar industry in North America. And there was a resistance to that. Um, because if we can't, uh, sell our wares and our skills and and embalming and this sort of thing, things that we were all trained uh, up to do and promote to the public, then of course you're going to get the resistance. But it's interesting um, although it's been a very popular thing to talk about, the uptake has been a lot less than we anticipated, um, hmm. at least from my perspective. I, I kind of thought we would see um, the the folks that are doing traditional burials migrate over to green. Mm-hmm. It was not the case at all. The interesting wow. thing that happened in our area was that the cremation families migrated to green burial. Mm. And that was an unexpected uh, phenomenon. Yeah. The cremation family chose their, their choice more for economics and simplicity. And when they were given an economical, simple alternative for burial, as opposed to the tradition, they jumped on it. So interesting to see that the uptake though, overall has not been quite what we expected, uh, but it's coming. It's, it's, it's slowly year over year. It's growing more and more. So green burial is, is even more cost effective than cremation. No, that, and oh, I think okay. that's so it, that's it's kind of in the middle. Yeah. Okay. So you have cremation and okay. you have traditional burial and then in the middle is green burial. Gotcha. And so I think sometimes that catches people off guard too, because they do expect it to be a low, low cost. It's not necessarily because you're really purchasing real estate still as you would have normally done with a traditional grave. Okay. Um, and then getting their heads around the, the ceremonial parts of things, like in the traditional sense, the caskets in the church or chapel with the body, and then we go out to the burial site. With green burial, if there's no embalming, we have to be cognizant of what's happening right. with the, phys- uh, the physiological changes of the body, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it opened up some new challenges for us as funeral directors to say, how do we incorporate this? So now what we do is the burial right away and then go and do the service. Mm. We just do it in reverse order. It, it solves the problem. Yeah. Like anything uh, that has been done a certain way for a long time, it does. there's a quite a changeover period in... in changing public opinion and and changing trends but yeah. it's uh it definitely sounds like a, a a sustainable and humane process that uh hopefully we'll see more and more of so so if you're if, if our listeners are thinking you know would i be a good candidate um or would my family be a good candidate for green bear what are some things you could say maybe to say here's some good reasons to do it well, I would think that um, there's a number. Uh, one would be if you still want that place to go 
uh, future generations to go and visit and know that you're in amongst that that particular area of, of the park um, the the sustainability of how it's done as opposed to using fossil fuels to use fire to cremate and the uh, the tremendous amount of uh, pollution that goes into the air you know this, so there's a definitely mm-hmm. an environmental reason um, and of course the simplicity and the getting back to earth and that whole restoration of, of the park area so I, I think those are those are the, the primary things um, green burial has been likened in some ways <clears throat> to the whole organic movement where you know if, if a person a consumer goes into a store to purchase an organic apple for example it's not a price issue if you're dedicated to that cause and that's yeah. uh, that that's the concept that you embrace then you're going to buy that product no matter what and and it's really we're finding that although it invokes a lot of conversation those that are doing it it's not a price issue it's for all those other reasons uh, they don't have to be convinced that this is a better way to go yeah and, and just one more quick question i had was um so the advantage of a graveyard i talked about i enjoy going and reading the reading the stories and stuff and and you know exactly okay this is where granddad was buried this is the right. spot in a place like this you know you talk about you know many people buried in a field and there's not a specific spot how do you how do you mitigate that challenge where perhaps the family wants to go this is the spot where they've been laid to rest yeah, that's um, right. is, is there a way to maybe perhaps get, o- get over that obstacle there that's one of the things that when people learn about the uh, the restrictions that will change their mind to go back to a traditional model because of those things however um, technology has an interesting way of helping us yeah we can we can pin those uh, graves right. with a pin we can have yeah. it in, um, uh, connect to a video oh, okay. of the person's life who's in that area cool. now you may not specifically be able to stand over the grave itself but you're within 10 20 feet of, of where granddad was buried yeah. but again using technology um, perhaps when you walk into that part of the of the forest there's a small um, indicator and then up come the names of all those who are there on mm. your smartphone you choose your granddad's name and then the video comes up you know wow. that's, that's great so yeah. um, as we move into the 21st century in funeral industry uh, we're using those kinds of interesting ways to approach it well, that's fascinating and I think you would I would think that you would need that technology in the burial process to avoid disturbing remains yeah absolutely yeah. the plots are pre-laid out on a map Mm-hmm. And so they know exactly, and then they do they do pin mark them, and then once the the, the digging is done, then they pull that pin and then move on. Now, um, perhaps there will be some technology that eventually will replace where they you know that could be a permanent little pin that's there uh, to isolate that exact spot. But that's uh, more of a mapping issue, so that like you say, they don't disturb the next person. Yeah. So this is fascinating, and and mm-hmm. a, a world that I have. No, haven't yeah. had any real yeah. idea about. So I appreciate. We're both learning about right now. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. And um, if we could close on on um, a bit of a more personal sure. aspect, and I'm curious why you do and why your family is involved with with this work. It's an interesting career path um initially it wasn't what i was intending to do with life um 
I had always had a, a, an interest in the ambulance world, and I, I was an ambulance operator driver for a long, long time. Oddly enough, in Alberta at the time, uh, funeral homes often owned and operated ambulances in their communities because mm -hmm. it wasn't considered part of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So um, my dad did that, and that's what got him into funeral service was his relationship with the ambulance world and in, in how it crossed over. And so uh, it happened the same way with me. Uh, my first real job out of high school was driving ambulance, but the funeral home was attached. So it, there was always that relationship. And, and as time went on, I tried to resist it, but it just drew me back that there's something about this, this work that is really rewarding. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just stayed on and uh, eventually apprenticed and, and went on to be licensed. Um, my wife, as an example, uh, knew I was a funeral director when we met and when we got married, and then she became a funeral director. So that mm. was an interesting thing to see. Our children, uh, I think a similar situation to my upbringing is they were raised around the funeral service industry, and then one of them embraced it and said, I want to do that as well. So it's, uh, it's very much a, a, a line of work that a lot of families do as multi-generational. You see that in every community. There's a multi-generational type link. But I think, um, yeah, you observe and you watch the, the interaction with families at a very, very low and difficult time in their life. Yeah. And you see what things you can do to help that process, whether it's making the deceased look better so they have a positive viewing experience or you're assisting in organizing that event for the for the celebration all of those things and uh, so it's it's really kind of a small c counselor type approach to to mm -hmm. helping uh, the our fellow man probably the most vulnerable moment in a person's life and you're absolutely. there for it it's absolutely. so crucial and i think that's what is a very important point is is the ethics in our industry has got to be the highest because uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately we hear a lot of horror stories about yeah. the fact that people are are you know, preyed upon uh, at a very vulnerable time. We hope that never happens, and we work uh, diligently to make sure that people are given choices, allowed to choose what they want, and they tell us what they want. You know, we don't tell them. <laughs> so that's what we hope to accomplish. Yeah, well, it, it's clear that um, that you're leading with ethics and values, and, and you are passionate about the work that you do and the impact that you can make through it. So yeah. I applaud that. Um, where can people go to find out more about the work that you do and your business? We have our website, which is www.earthsoption.com. And Earth has an S, so E-A-R-T-H-S, <laughs> option.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, so sure. yeah. yeah so they certainly can feel free if there's any questions that people have or they want to review planning, uh, that sort of thing, by all means, uh, give us a call. I'm sure there's one, one final question the listeners are probably wondering. They probably heard you talk about driving the ambulance and they're probably wondering how fast you got going. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that was always the joke in our, yeah, exactly. in our, in our small town that, uh, you know, they would call my dad by his name and they'd say, he's going to get you coming or going. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for chatting with us. That's great. Well, thank you very much. That's fascinating. You. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Chris. So, Dr. Roseanne Buthen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're very excited to have you here. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, thank you. So, an honor to be here today. The inaugural uh, conference, just the, the energy in the room, the passion, 
so powerful. Uh, I feel very humbled to be here, very honored. And so what I have been doing in the last three years in my my role as a nurse, nurse specialist, has been working um, in the Health Authority for Vancouver Island. And my role has been to help implement an assisted dying, the legislation for an assisted dying program on the island. So that is what I have been focused on and focusing on ensuring that people have access to uh, this very unique new end-of-life option. Do you want to tell us just a little bit more, or for listeners who aren't as familiar with assisted dying, what exactly that entails? Yes, so assisted dying, so the acronym would be MAID, M-A-I-D, and it stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. So that's the legislation. It it really holds the um, essence of of euthanasia and the traditional idea of assisted suicide. So in Canada, it's very unique. We have um, people can pursue this option and they can have uh, oral or they can have the intravenous. So it holds both components, which would be very different than in other areas like um, in the United States, for example, where that is only, that is different. So, so this is a law now in Canada. We, we are able to do this. And, and I think you had said in your presentation, it's coming up on four years, is it, that it's been a law? This is three years completing in June that it was actually the law was enacted. So wow. we'll be entering into the fourth year within the next few weeks. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Hmm. You said something in your presentation which stood out, a number of things, but one of them was we're in a world where non-judgment is what we need. And I thought that was quite powerful. And what judgments do you think come up that can be problematic around the work that you do? Definitely. I think when people hold judgment ideas, when people draw a line in the sand, when people are into this um, black, white, or they're into an either this or this, uh, we create dichotomies, polarizations, and that is not helpful. I would like to see a world where we can hold ideas and we can hold this and this. So say, for example, with assisted dying, it may not be a choice that you would personally make for yourself. But if someone makes that choice that is, it resonates, it's right for them, then how can you respect their choice um, and journey with them? And so what I did when I did my PhD work, my research was looking at older Ill, older persons aging with um, HIV. So we've never had persons age with HIV before because people unfortunately died. And in interviewing individuals, which I'm very grateful for their time, they, they talked about stigma, how they had been hurt and suffered, and it's the words people use. It, it's that look, it's a word, it's uh, a disregarding, making someone invisible. And even though they would have had those experiences 20, 25 years ago, they live in the heart, in the moment, as if they're very real today. And I just, that is so unacceptable. I, I find we can we can do better as human beings. We can be kinder to each other. And so the, the idea that we stigmatize someone for a choice they make, for and be it a choice, be it how they look, be it how they dress, be it the color of their hair, be it the, the choices they make in life. So my my whole being in the world is to just help us be better, be kinder, be more open, be more accepting. I, I ultimately believe that we are we are the other. We we share so many similar experiences. So that's where I come from. So for our listeners who are perhaps struggling with this as they're listening to this. Uh, with the whole idea of, of, of assisted death, 
what what kind of counsel would you give them for, for those that are struggling with perhaps it's a it's a moral struggle perhaps it's against their religion perhaps it's just against their comfort zone what are some perhaps resources or wisdom that you could pass on to them that could help them begin this conversation yeah that's so important certainly um, people hold religious moral ethical beliefs that may not align and and that's that's their world, that's their life, that's very, very important to them, and I would never, ever believe or want to change anyone's mind. But how can you still say to a person, I love you, this isn't a choice I would make, but I, I love you. So how do people do that? I think people have to go deep. I think it takes great courage. I think if you had a loved one making a choice you didn't understand or weren't comfortable with, I'm sure it must be very, very difficult uh, reach out to your community of support. Um, I don't know that we quite have the answer. Like I said, we are so focused on autonomy of the individual. And uh, and yet our lives are shared. Mm-hmm. And the decisions we make hurt others. Uh, and not even intentionally. And so how do we, we do this delicate dance of relationship? I think it's something we're still learning. Yeah, I, l- I love the phrase delicate dance. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is. Mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Another one of the obstacles that you mentioned that we're seeing in healthcare is the rise of dementia. And you mentioned in your presentation that that's only going to continue to escalate over coming decades. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how uh, my, actually my grandfather suffered dementia quite extensively over the last period of his life. And, and, for people in a caregiving role or for family members who are experiencing that of their parents or loved ones, what would you suggest is a, a way to approach that with compassion and, and care? It's very complicated and the trajectory for a person living with dementia. There are many different kinds of dementia, but say if we're talking about Alzheimer's where it's a very predictable, elongated um, period of time, and of course, end-stage dementia is very different where the person is, is so totally dependent. So for family, I mean, you need a support system around you. You can't do it alone, I don't think. You, yeah, it's, it's so difficult. You know, you bring up family. Uh, I, I too, currently, my, my wife's mother's father is living uh, with dementia. It's so, it's so advanced that a recent test he just did, he, he was scored among the lowest that they've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. He's living above, in, in an apartment above um, their home, but he needs to be in a, a care facility, but there's no mm-hmm. room available. And so they're living with this, my mother-in-law is living with this ongoing daily stress, uh, grief already mm-hmm. with seeing, seeing her father um, struggling with this, but, but, but not able to get into a care, care facility because there's, there's no room. What, what in those situations, how can we overcome a challenge like that? Because I, I can only imagine that challenge is going to get larger and more intense as, as more people retire and, 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 and get older. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's political too because we need to to let our MLAs and MPs know about the challenges. And I, I think I think some politicians know and understand it. I guess it comes down to dollars too. But 
how unfortunate that if a person needs care, the care isn't there. And then, of course, how do we support people to stay in, ho- in their home as long as possible and then to support, say, your mother or grandmother as caregivers? And, and we, we have to do that better, and I think we're, we're slowly coming to that. Um, it's, it's a huge issue. It, it's an issue that affects women, too, because women are mostly the caregivers in community, and a lot of that's invisible work. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just how do we just be as loving and compassionate? And it can also be very, very rewarding to care for someone with dementia. There can be such brilliant moments of clarity and beauty. And if you are so exhausted and fatigued, it gets harder and harder. So, I mean, that idea that it takes a village, it takes a community is so, so true. Well, one, th- one practical thing that we're, we've dealt with is whether or not we should correct them when like every morning he'll come down and say the same thing right and and so the the whole idea in the beginning was should we say no no actually remember your your wife has passed you know or no 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 remember um you they got your haircut yesterday that's not today and and i've heard i've heard a couple schools of thoughts of no you shouldn't correct because that would just lead to more confusion or Mm -hmm. But then people feel like, well, am I, I don't want to lie. So what would you say to people who are sort of struggling with that? Well, I mean, we're struggling with that right now. What would you say to me <laughs> on, on how would you advise us? Yeah, I always remember a situation, and it was in a care facility, and the staff were asking the same question. The, every day at 4 o'clock, the, the woman with dementia, um, a woman living with dementia, would be agitated around 4 o'clock, and they would say, you know, kind, you know, get ready, we're coming to the dining room. And she would, like, no, no, she can't go. And, well, why not? And she's waiting for her husband to come in. He had gone to bring in the cows, and she's waiting, and he hasn't come in from the barn yet. And you're right. So then they would say, well, you know, he, he died, and he's not coming in. And she would relive this trauma every day. Mm-hmm. And so the, the team got together and said, this seems so so unkind. And so what they did is um, someone approach would be to say, um, you know what, he's okay. He's bringing in the cows, and he is okay, and he's going to be fine. And when he's done, he knows you're here, and he will find you. Mm. And then her eyes lit up. And mm. so every day, um, so I don't think there's a pat answer, but for that person in that situation, what, what seems like the kind answer so that we're not re-traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned community a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. and... I find that community is something that is ingrained in our humanness, um, but at the same time, in our society, it can be lacking, and people fall through the cracks, and, and there's growing isolation, I find. Mm-hmm. What methods might you be aware of of building and strengthening community? Yeah, I was talking about different traditions, and years ago, like when I talked to my, my parents and how if someone died, everybody came forth, and the casseroles didn't end, and, yeah. and community was very, very shared. And of course, the church was a big part of the world then, and, and now um, in our communities, people often feel isolated. You can go into a coffee shop where everyone gathers, and everyone's looking at a device. Everyone's got their head down. So how do we, how do we um, be in connection together in community? And I think it's... it's whatever works for an individual. Find something in your community, um, whatever that is. Uh, Maybe it's a gardening group, maybe it's a walking group. Um, Reach out. But I know in the United Kingdom right now, for example, I think there's a whole campaign um, trying to 
address concerns around isolation and loneliness and loneliness as a determinant of health because if you are lonely that can lead to other things that can lead to uh, mood uh, it could lead to depression it could lead to maybe you're not eating you're not getting out and so that idea that we're connected um, and I mean years ago maybe the postman came to your house and that was a connection now that doesn't happen mm-hmm. and we're doing so much online we're not even going into the store to buy our clothes or grocery we're just we're ordering them so we're gaining and maybe we're losing in other regards Mm -hmm. so if you know that's something you need find a way that you can fulfill that in your life and what that looks like um maybe it's getting a little dog and walking the dog um i know if i walk my dog everybody talks to me if i'm walking alone you know you just don't stop a stranger but if you've got the dog it's like it's like oh i can say hi to her hey i like your little you know so i mean be creative um But yeah, I think I think it's something we need in society for sure. Yeah, even that idea of kind of forcing yourself to be to remove that isolation or or be active in it in a group. It's because often it's that first step that can be daunting or fearful. Mm-hmm. What if I don't fit in? Uh, even mm-hmm. I remember just going out for soccer teams that I didn't know the guys for, and and that first practice or first couple practices or tryouts, it's. You're a little bit tentative. You're like, you know, trying to find reasons why you can't make it and can't go. And, and now that that community is a huge part of my life and and has uh, added so much and, and made some great connections. And, and that can be said for all kinds of different business mixers, especially for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's sure. it's so important to yeah. to just understand that there's some nervousness there. But that is common. That is that is human. It's there. And you can get a lot of magic if you push through that. And social media can be toxic, as we know. I mean, it could be brutal. But when it's working, it can be wonderful, wonderful. I mean, there's Facebook groups for almost everything right now. I mean, I'm part of a bunch of them. And and it's cool because someone will just move into town and say move to couch and babe down where i live and they'll they'll say hey i just i just moved to the area and and you know i'm just introducing myself and everyone jumps on there there's like 100 likes and they're hey welcome hey you got a child this restaurant's i mean and then it's just that's where community you know that's when social media is great but then of course it can also be a place where people air their neuroticisms and their fears mm-hmm. and their and their you know prejudices and and all those kind of things but that's humanity <laughs> we're going to have that everywhere Mm-hmm. And I think with this too, there's a, um, generational issues too, right? Because you right. can get on your phone and you're on Facebook and you're you're part of something and you can create that. Other persons might not have that skill or ability or might even maybe can't afford the phone yeah. first off, so the technology. Um, and I think it almost, we, we might even, it takes courage, I think, to lean in. But it's also a skill of, of just being social and talking to people. So, and maybe just do little things when you, if you do go to the grocery store and buy your grocery, just to slow down and engage with the the person, that you know, the teller or whomever, um, so that you don't lose that skill and you don't lose the confidence in that. Um, and if you think of little children nowadays, they are instructed, don't talk to a stranger. Um, so again. It just, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. our society is in a transition for sure. It is. But that habit building is something that yeah. we often refer to. And it is being social. It, it's important to reinforce that habit and, and practice it when mm-hmm. start, start with something small and, and move up. That is how we be, become better and, and more adept at things. Yeah. I wanted to, um, in kind of wrapping up, and 
I, I wanted to go back to the work that you do and assisted deaths. And, and at the end of your presentation, you had a, a wish for those listening. And I w- wondered if you wanted to um, further that along to anyone listening to the podcast, that wish that you had. So my wish was that we all think about death, and our own death, our own life, lived uniquely and and to cultivate imagine your death and then to cultivate what your death could look like so that it it was important and then to arrive at that place how do you do that and i would suggest that you have to live your life well and there and you will arrive at that good death so but to be thoughtful about it and, and to cultivate it to lean in to be thoughtful about it um why are we here what is the meaning of life like it's all of that but um I like the idea of cultivate. It leaves it open. It implies um, different action mm-hmm. and energy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a wonderful place to leave off. And, uh, and thank you for bringing those thoughts and observations and, and putting that out there. I think it's very helpful for people. And mm-hmm. it can be daunting, but it's, it's so important that we do lean in. Mm-hmm. So thank yeah, you for thank leading you. that conversation. Well, and we, we feel honored to, to be your first podcast. Maybe this will be the first of many. <laughs> I'm on a roll now. <laughs> you are on a roll. You can't be stopped. So. Cool. Yeah, no, thank you very much, both of you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, Glenn, you started off the, the conference the day today with a performance and it was an amazing, powerful way to begin the conference and I think really set a, a beautiful tone for beginning. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the performance that you gave? Um, <clears throat> the term performance is interesting um, <laughs> because, it, you know, they're part of ritual um, or what I've thought about ritual sometimes is that um, there is a certain amount of Sounds like I'm cheapening it here, but uh, a little bit of showbiz. Um, Because I think that um, music, particularly music uh, or or singing, um, it it has a ceremonial aspect. It helps people focus. Yeah. Um, What I found with um, particularly singing an opening song, uh, that particular song, that Dakota song, it's uh, it addresses that uh, that uh, spotted eagle or the young eagle before they're about four or five years old before they get that white head, so they're referred to as a wambadi hadeshka, and that's in that Dakota dialect. So wambadi is uh, an eagle means eagle, and hadeshka means with spots or spotted. So it's referred to as a calling song. What they do with that, with those particular songs, is they're they're often sung at the beginning of a ceremony to call good things your way. Hmm. Um, I don't always like to say what those things are. They're calling. Um, some of my teachers refer to them as uh, the powers. They just say, you know, we all have our different ideas on what what we're calling to come, whether it's uh, seen as relatives or ancestors or or. Um, Things that, that have a spiritual aspect to them, or just the uh, the powers that are powering the universe, and so we call those things in the beginning. And I I find that um, although I've been in lots of situations over the years where I've been either teaching or or uh, 
involved with various kinds of ceremonies, um, I found that uh, I always try to start with a song because it seems to help focus people's thinking yeah. or change their thinking. Um, I always say in my own work with the uh, Victoria Native Friendship Center, I, I look after a men's anti-domestic violence program, Native men's anti-domestic violence program called Warrior, or it's called Awakening the Warrior Within. Mm. And I've seen it transform a room so many times that, or a group of folks that, um, that I found that it, it, that if you do it, it'll, it'll change the room. It changes the, the, the energy in the room. So you did a workshop earlier about, uh, First Nations perspectives on death and dying. And it was a joint workshop that you did with an earlier, uh, with someone we had on earlier and she was giving uh, a Buddhist perspective. And I'm wondering if you can speak to uh, some of the things that you were leading in that workshop. Being of uh, mixed ancestry, I've got uh, um, British, basically Irish, English, Scottish ancestry uh, on one side of the family and then uh, having uh, Iroquois ancestry on the other side of the family. I often tease and say that um, I can only give half the story <laughs> as far as those things, but... Um, so I, you know, you know, I, I, um, I never, never try to present myself as any kind of expert and you often find that, um, um, as I'd shared this morning, there's a, re there's been a real, uh, interest in indigenous or, uh, um, Indian perspectives, North American Indian perspectives on, on, um, on culture and, and, you know, the Americans one time put a, they put a book out called 500 Nations. And it's, uh, I think there's even a big documentary that goes along with it as well. Um, might have been a documentary series. And um, there's just such a variety. It's really hard to, to say. And even within families, you'll find that people don't necessarily agree. Um, or they have totally different perspectives. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's so... I can only really speak about my own, um, my own personal beliefs, um, but what's been shared with me by my own guides and teachers that have, uh, have uh, helped me out over the years. Um, I had a, I had a couple of um, uh, Dakota gentlemen that uh, that I assisted for many years. And then I had some Okanagan teachers as well, and and Shkwapmik or Shkwapmik Shushwap, um, Shushwap men men as well, and some Cree teachers. So I've had a variety of teachers from different places, and here as well, even even in the peninsula here, um, um, I've got friends that are in uh, their Coast Salish and on the mainland, the Fraser Valley, here in the island, and then some. Haida teachers as well from up the coast, Quagilth as well. And uh, so I have seen some patterns there, some things that are consistent. In most of the, the cultural teachings I have, there's um, a belief and an awareness of, uh, of our ancestors being around, or at least we need to be aware of our behavior as far as whether that brings, um, whether it's a respectful thing we're doing, like when we make a decision on something, 
we need to think about our ancestors that have gone ahead of us. But we also have to think of the, um, it was said to me one time, we have to be careful how we walk on the ground because the, the unborn are waiting there. Their faces are just below the surface. And they always say that we come from the ground. Everything, our bodies and the nutrients, we're part of a nutrient cycle and, and that they're, they're waiting to be born. So we've got to be careful what we do with the ground mm. because those mm. babies are just waiting to emerge. Mm. So, you know, if you're going to spill a bunch of, you know, solvent on the ground or, 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 you know, change your oil and dump it somewhere, you know, you have to think about the, where, what are you doing to the future? As, as the owner of a landscaping company, that means a lot to me, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We have to make that act that extra effort and I think uh, mm -hmm. a lot of us in, in there, you know years ago we, we, a lot of us had forgotten those things because they weren't taught to us that's right yeah. when you speak about your teachers that you've had from a variety of places and, and backgrounds how what how was it that you found those teachers or that they found you well that's uh, part of my own uh, background it's um I was, uh, there was a lot of alcohol around when I was young. Um, a lot of the people I knew drank and when I was, you know, young teenager, I picked it up and, but I remember saying to people around me, even my, and my friends, I said, I was like 16. I said, yeah, I won't do this forever. I know the day will come. It's okay right now. This is just having fun and being a kid. Or I shouldn't say a kid, being a being a party a, a party youth, a party animal, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and sort of just out there having fun. What you know? Um, I said, you know, the day will come, and uh, got to be about thirty six. I think between thirty six and thirty seven. Um, I I. That's the year I quit. I think it's nineteen ninety-one. Was it? And um, I was invited to, uh, of all things, a pipe ceremony. I'd never been to one before. And this um, this ceremonial pipe. So these are the ones that are generally um, used by cultures on the prairies. There's usually two elements. There's a stone bowl and a long wooden stem. The stone bowl representing the earth and the and the stem representing the sky so it's a mating of the of the sky and the earth mm -hmm. together yeah, I love that. and when that happens that's when that ceremony is going on so i was invited to come to this thing and it was on my birthday of all things and mm -hmm. big ceremony it was maybe 60 people involved and this pipe thing that the guy had was so big he had to carry it around each one of us. And as this thing came closer, and that, that stem on this thing was pointing towards me, I got a distinct thought. It was almost like it was talking to me, but it was my mind talking to me and said, if I smoke this thing, that means if I accept this tobacco and offer it, I cannot be a fool anymore. It's time to quit. Mm. And I thought this is this is this thing's coming and it pointed at me and I, I thought 
It's almost like it said to me, I see you, you know better, you know better. Hmm. And so I thought if, if I in fact accept this, I can't lie to myself anymore. I, or I can't, you know, just avoid, avoid these things. So anyway, that, that thing came my way. And uh, because I was a, I'm an artist, sculptor, um, very quickly, people invited me to come and assist, help set things up. I'm used to doing that at a production company and would set things up. And I had these these uh, uh, different um, spiritual guides or, or elders or ceremonial people say, could you help me set up, a, like for example, the Dakotas call it an anipi, that means a covered hut. So uh, it's also the slang term for it is a sweat lodge. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, well, can you help me? Well, so I'm handy with tools, so I'd come. Over the next year or two, I was uh, then helping set up things like these. Uh, we Wayang Wachipi, which is a um, sun gazing dancing lodge. So that's uh, the common term for that is a, a sun dance. Hmm. And so I'd uh, connected with some men who um, were had come all the way from Manitoba to set up one in Merritt, BC. So I was up there, and this was all part of my process where I was um, assisting. Um, thinking that, um, you know, I'm learning something here. I was attracted to it, didn't know why, but, 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 and I was seeing transitions in people or transformation. I was seeing people changing their lives. And uh, it's interesting about talking about ritual and, and ceremony earlier. Um, I've seen transformation in people, and I think. If you see it enough, you start to think, hmm, that might happen with me too. So it did kind of happen that way. So ended up, I, I ended up traveling and, and assisting people with different uh, ceremonies around so, Western North America. So you, you talk about your perspective on death, Glenn. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could share in your own words how you view death. I've always seen death as a... Um, I've never struggled with the idea of it being morbid because a lot of people do. You, it's very hard in our culture to talk about death. Sometimes people go, "Ooh, yeah," <laughs> you know, "Oh, don't be so negative," and you say, "Well, um, I have always liked, uh, as an artist, but also as a just a, a human being and a, a student and all these other things. I've always really appreciated deadlines." <laughs> because what a deadline is it's an ally at least I see it's an ally uh, because it, because I'm the kind of person that will some, sometimes hold stuff back mm -hmm. because I want to make sure I have the maximum amount of time uh, to, to make a final decision mm. and, but the thing is without that deadline you'd never get around to it because right. you say oh, I'm going to wait I'll, I'll, I'll do that next week but when you see that deadline it's coming closer whether it's on the clock or you're staying up all night doing something. And I find that because what it does is that deadline forces me to focus. Hmm. You say, okay, there's no more time for this. Yeah, right. You've had your final coffee and it's time to, time to get to it and, and get it done. So I've always appreciated that. And I find now, so here I am at, um, at 67 years old. Hmm. 
and uh, had an open heart surgery a year ago. And, um, and I've had a couple of uh, near-death experiences where um, I can, I've, I've said that I, I, I can, I felt like for the last maybe uh, 20 years that I am walking towards my grave, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I just have to be aware of it. Yeah. But what, what I like about death is the thing is it, it is the incentive to get out and do stuff. Yeah. Because we don't have a, a finite amount or an infinite amount of time. We have, we have this, um, um, the death, that death gives our life value. You know, it gives it, it gives it meaning. It's like, you may not decide to do anything with it, but having a life is quite a gift. Hmm. And so the death is, uh, is going to say, you know, um, you're not going to have this forever. You better do something with this if, if you wish. It's almost like that drum beat in the background, mm-hmm. bringing things to focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, it, exactly. It, it, uh, it, it, it causes focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, a uh, couple of lines, I remember out of the, the one film I like that, uh, um, little big man that mm-hmm. uh, Dustin Hoffman was in years ago and Chief Dan George became of course famous um, and he's from Tsleil-Waututh over in uh, Vancouver Chief Dan George is one of the, the first uh, Coast Salish or, or native native actors to really I think begin to break down those stereotypes of yeah. North American Indians um, where he kept saying and wrote about the film this is a good day to die mm-hmm. and that's a term that I'd heard the Dakotas and Lakotas used too. They say it's like you should be prepared for your death. Right. In other words, don't put stuff off. No. If there's things you know that you need to do, get them done because this may be your last day. Similar in in the thinking of uh, how you're walking, how you're touching the earth. Like what what legacy, what impact do you wish to leave? And and being conscious of that in your decisions removes that selfishness that we're kind of inherently dealing with and uh, takes the mind more to impact that we wish to make and, and how we want future generations to live. Maybe as, as fine of sort of a way as clo- to, to close for the day, um, a question I had for you was, when the day finally comes, when, uh, when you meet your death, what story would you hope people would tell about Glenn? Well, the um, I I see my life right now <clears throat> because of the surgery and a few other things that have happened recently. Um, I think I'm at a time in my life when I'm entering my third act. Hmm. So I've had I've had this first two thirds that have been a lot of different experiences and things. Now some now it's time to do something with it. When I talked about that ally, that that death that's there, um, I have to get off my yeah my rear end and 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 do something now. I'm I'm an artist who doesn't do art. I do art like but, but not enough. I've got a, all these images floating around, and now I've got to start bringing them. Like when we do artwork, 
especially artwork that's never been seen before. We're bringing it out of the spirit world and realizing it so people can see it. Yeah, I've got to do that. I mentioned this this morning that um, that we we get to solve the great mystery, mm-hmm. whatever that is, and I look forward to that because mm-hmm. I've almost been there a couple of times and to the point that I said, "Oh, you better prepare yourself. You're gonna gonna die now." When I got hit by a semi. I really said to myself, I had time to say, You're, this is it, get yourself ready. Mm. So I'm not afraid of death, but hey, just like anybody else, I'd like a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, uh, I heard a great line the other day that said, um, the only person that's concerned about becoming a, that would like to live to be 100 is a 99-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that's a... A great point to to wrap it up on, Glenn. uh, I thank you for sharing your story with us today, even briefly, even just a part of it. And and we hope to to hear more at at another point down the road uh, as our journeys continue. So thank you for being here and sharing all that you did. Thank you, Glenn. Great. Well, well, um, I I thank you both, and it's it's been a pleasure meeting with you. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. You know, this is uh, um, sharing knowledge, sharing ideas like this. Very important. It's important work. Thank you very much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles. <laughs>